Hi, welcome to the Urban Lifestyle Report with Carolyn Morris Walker, your host. My name is Carolyn Morris Walker, and welcome to the Urban Lifestyle Report to exemplify Blacknificence and Black excellence in our community. It's a place and a space to showcase Black and African people in the community who are often invisible and not celebrated for their achievements by popular media. So I'm always thrilled when I get to meet people who are doing outstanding work, whether it's full-time or a side hustle. I believe our community needs to hear about you. So I'm most honored and pleased to have with me today Dean Dory. Her name is Elizabeth Dory Tanstal. She is a design anthropologist, researcher, academic leader, writer, and educator. And what's even more impressive, she is the dean. She is the Dean for the Faculty of Design at Ontario College of Art and Design University in Toronto and the first Dean of Faculty anywhere in the world. So is that true? The first black dean. The first black dean. dean. Let's qualify. Let, 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 <laughs> let, let's qualify that. The first black dean of a faculty of design anywhere. Yes. That's so true. that's Excellent. So um, I'm just going to tell, uh, say a bit more about you. And, and uh, uh, Dean Dory holds a PhD and an MA in anthropology from Stanford U- University. And she has a BA in anthropology from Brown Mayor? Bryn Mawr. Bryn Mawr. I was Mar looking College. at that and couldn't Bryn figure out how to say that. So, um, yes, tell us about who you are. I, I, I'm reading about you. I, heard, I, I saw that you, um, you are interested in human values and des- design as a manifestation of those values. And how would you articulate that in terms of the black community? <laughs> Um, so I guess that relates to the fact that I'm a design anthropologist by training. So again, my PhD is in anthropology from Stanford, but I've worked just as many years in the design field. And so my work is about what is the relationship between the values that people have, which is what you study as an anthropologist, is what are people's values, what matters to them, what is it that they want to pass on to the next generation, uh, what is it that gives their life meaning, Um how is that related to design, which is all the things that we make that carry that information or knowledge about what is meaningful in our lives? And then how that relates to people's actual everyday experiences in the sense of like, I might say I have this value of equity <laughs> and diversity. I might design some things around that. But if it doesn't 
translate into people's direct everyday experiences, then I either need to redo the design or I either need to rethink the values around it. Right, because people feel disconnected if it's not reflective of what their belief systems are and can't really understand it or buy into it or value it. Exactly, exactly. So my question is, why OCAD? Why Toronto? What was the appeal? Um, It was, the appeal was the call. Um, So when the job, job description for the new Dean of Faculty Design, they said they were looking for someone who could help uh, decolonize uh, the design faculty and help bring um, indigenous uh, revitalization. And so the work I had been doing in Australia, because previous to uh, coming to OCAT University, I worked at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia, was I was working very closely with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, so indigenous Uh communities there. Um, I had built a, a undergrad, a, a master's program in design anthropology with a specialization in indigenous knowledge. Um, and so, and I would say, actually, I co-built it with um, Nor- um, Dr. Norm Sheehan, who is an indigenous faculty member there, and then co-built it with actually the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities there, because by the time into the third year of the program that all of the courses were being the indigenous knowledge courses were being taught by indigenous faculty okay. um, and more importantly a lot of them use the the training that they got teaching our courses to get more permanent full-time academic Right, because I would think, too, for the student population, if you don't have professors that look like you or there is a deeper connection when professors look like Mm -hmm. you because they understand your your life and your culture and the issues that you may deal with. So that's... uh, that's important, you know, having people look like you. Well, and it's really important in design because design is the field that makes everything that we live with. And so if it's not being made by you and for you, mm-hmm. then not only like you feel disconnected from the world, right? Because right? you're disconnected from everything around you because it doesn't speak to you. And so if you don't have diverse faculty who can help you figure out how to take your cultural knowledge, your um, the specific aesthetics, right, and notions of beauty that come from who you are and who your community is. If you don't have someone who can help facilitate that process to make bring those ideas into real everyday life, um, then you feel disconnected from your practice. That's right, right. and that um, takes me back to when I first met you, <laughs> which was at um, an art exhibit for a woman by the name of Nicole Kobe out mm-hmm. of Paris. And she does uh, beautiful illustrations of black women and family and children. And again, you know, there's a connection between um, having that kind of art within your own home and having it available so you can have it in your own home. And, um, and, and so that it gives us a positive reflections of who we are and how we see ourselves. So I, deep connection. I, I totally understand that. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, in your position, you see many trends in the area of design. Mm -hmm. And is there a trend on how black artists express themselves in the world of design, perhaps? Is there a trend or maybe there's not? Maybe there's a plethora of expression that's going on. Well, I think one of the things, so you asked the question, why Toronto? One of the things that I'm learning about uh, being here in Toronto is there is the 
hyper diversity of black communities and black aesthetics here, right? So again, there's diversity in the United States where I grew up, but there's a way in which like, again, institutional oppression, structural oppression means you sort of fall into blackness right? <laughs> in a very singular way. But here, everyone's able to maintain to a certain extent the nuances of, of their background. So you have those who are, you know, fifth, sixth generation, um, sort of black North American, black Canadian. You have those who are one or two generations from the Caribbean. You have those who are, you know, generation zero from Mm -hmm. Africa. And so in the context of Toronto, it's hard to see, it's hard to identify a trend in the same way that, let's say, I can identify trends in black aesthetics that are happening from the United States. Because here you actually have the wonderful opportunity for people to maintain a closer relationship to the to the source of their cultural identities right. and their aesthetics. And then what's interesting about what's happening now in the world is that that's going global, right? In terms of the music, in terms of um, the visuals, that there's a way in which things that are happening here in Toronto, mm. mixture of aesthetics now is becoming like we normally think of black culture as a dominant african-american thing that's correct but it's like canada is on the map right, right. and <laughs> or i think toronto in particular is on the map and i think what is also interesting is that um how influential um african-american culture is used and it is like this sweeping framework that defines us as black people and i'll give you an example i was living in japan as a teacher And speaking with one of my colleagues from one of the countries, uh, maybe Australia, maybe England, and they referred to me as Mm African-American. And I looked at them and I said, but first of all, I I live in Canada. And and second of all, (laughs) I was born in England. So there's no African-American piece in that definition whatsoever. So... It's interesting how the, you know, everybody just sweepingly black people were all African American and and doesn't recognize that we're not a homogeneous group by any means. We have diversity within Africanness and blackness. Well, and again, that has to do with, you know, a sort of um, American, quote unquote, soft power in terms of like the dominance, the economic dominance of the United States. So I've traveled all over the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) and... um, and it's always fascinating for me to travel to different places and, again, to see the, that type of reflection of African-American reflection that somehow gets presented as, an, as, as the aspiration right. of what to be in places like, like in Ethiopia. You don't have to do that. Or even, you know, uh, hip-hop culture in Australia among Aboriginal kids. It's like, you don't have to do that, right? So there's a sense in which... I, recognizing that American hardcore economic dominance of the structures around music, the structures around fashion, the structures around all those things, and the co-optation of African-American street fashion, which then becomes distributed through the those world. Means, That's right. right. And, and becomes the measure, right. right? And that, so I always think of that as, as a sort of a tension-causing relationship, right? Because it's not, it's not as if as African-Americans working within that system, you're not exploited, right? Um, you're, that's deep exploitation that's in right. the music business, the fashion business, the sports business, all of those sort of things. Um, 
but it's able to be spread because of the the economic power of the United States and the way in which it's been able to dominate so many other people's markets in terms of pushing out. Right. And it's um, really interesting music. that I also get a little bit miffed when I, the other day, watching telly for some non-essential product and they had all of this hip hop business in the background. And I was just looking at it thinking, we are not... our. Our culture is so co-opted and we never receive the economic mm. benefits from that. So in the same way that we are demonized, the same way our culture is revered and held as the standard to everything else, to be cool and in and what's hip and what's setting trends, right? right? right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's always... It's always the tension, I think, between, again, in any place that you go, how do you work within the system because you need to get paid, you need exactly. to eat, you need to pay rent, you need to all these things, but not be co-opted by the system. And I think that's why, like, that's where innovation comes into play. Like, right. it's a thing where, um, again, you think of um, here in Toronto, different places, that why we're constantly as black people innovating is that we're always moving away from the co-optation of whatever we've created, whether that's language, whether that's the way we dress, whether it's the music, whether it's our food, whether whatever it is, mm -hmm. that we're constantly innovating because we want to stay away from, um, we know, we know that there's going to be a process of co-optation. Right. And so we just keep moving ahead of it. Right. right. And, and it's interesting, you know, I came to Canada in 1973. And one of the things that, again, you, as you see the shift uh, in, in how our culture influences, I remember that if you were driving, most of the time, if you were hearing a boom, 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 bass line or, you know, hip-hop music, blasting. It was always black mm -hmm. people who were doing it. And now I am just shocked. Like, you know, I'm hearing that bass line and I look over and it's everybody else but us. Mm -hmm. And I remember this young uh, young guy, uh, I think he was, I, I don't know where he was from, uh, to be honest, but he was playing some hardcore reggae music. And I had to ask him, I said, what you know about that? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you... And he was like, you know, he gave me the whole thing, big fan, blah, blah, blah. But it's really interesting that, again, how we get weeded out, but we set the trends for this. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it's like I, I, I love jazz music and I had to stop going to jazz places because I would be there and there might, there would, not only would there not be other black individuals in the audience, mm -hmm. um, but half the time there wouldn't even be black jazz musicians who were playing the music, mm -hmm. right? And again, on the one hand, um, there's an essay that's in my head that I have to write, which is called The Alchemy of Black Pain, which is the way in which that if you think of all of the great human tragedies, right, that have happened in terms of the breaking up of family, enslavement, older sort of things, like that is in many ways... Um, the legacy of many black people around the world. Exactly. Right? And yet there's this way in which we've been able to turn that into exquisite expression of joy, of hope, of 
Um, everything but despair. I mean, even if you think of blues music, it's always a story of resilience. Right. And yet when that then travels outside of the community, it becomes the way in which people feel that they can feel. Right. Right. So it's like, I can only express my sense of sadness by listening to the blues, right? Which comes from a particular time in a particular place in a particular context of real, real economic deprivation and right. racism and needing to move in mass from one place to another to order to feel like you could have a life, right. right? And yet we've become that music, those forms of expression. If you want to express rebellion, then you go into hip-hop and rap. If you right. want to express uh, joy and transcendence, you go into gospel, right? So there's a way in which we've become, um, the pain has been converted into gold, so right. to speak. That black pain has been converted into gold so that other people learn how to feel. Right. And how to feel deeply. Right. Um, and yet... If we use those expressions to define ourselves, it's still used as a backlash against yeah. us. Like, we don't benefit from saying, oh, you know, even in how we speak and express ourselves. You know, again, work situation. I, I work in a predominantly white office. And I remember I was in, listening to a conversation and the, the, the woman said, that's not how I roll. And I was like, huh? What you know about that? <laughs> you know, and and yet when I'm in that meeting, I, I feel like I, I have to be very aware of how I express myself as the black women. But my white colleagues can just use these expressions very easily without feeling that there might be some kind of backlash right. for it. But the, the interesting thing, though, about that transition, though, is that, and I always think about it from the perspective of the younger generation. So one of the things, like, so every morning I post hashtag Dean Drag, right? I love Instagram. it. I love it. I and, love it. And part of that is like a performance of authentic leadership. So I wear um, often uh, African patterns. I've done a sari summer where I've worn summer saris from South Asia um, every other week. Um, and it's and it's in that notion of that I am a dean, which is in a fairly high position in an institution. And then I think in the city of Toronto, there's a lot of I say cultural and social capital that comes with being the dean of design Absolutely. at Okan University. Um, but I'm going to show you, especially young BIPOC people, that you can inhabit that space with a sense of authenticity right. and bring yourself into that space without feeling like you have to completely assimilate. Right. Exactly. And so for me, that notion of like, you know, my white colleagues being using more, you know, black vernacular or dressing in more hip hop ways, that does mean like for me, there may be a little bit of a tension that I feel within it. But I know that for my kids, like my young students, they can rock into that situation right, right. and feel that like they can be more of themselves Selves. because the people around them are more like them. Right, right. right. And so, so there is that sense of like, oh, can't we have our own thing? But, but it's that sense to which the more they take on in an authentic and respectful way. Right. Um, which I think, again, is one of the beautiful things about Toronto is that, like, again, there's a way in which everyone takes on everyone else's uh, cultural 
Um, the the assumption of cultural pluralism mm. is deeper here, where it's like it's not it's not a thing to have samosas one night, right, <laughs> uh, right, dim sum on Sunday, and that be considered part of an authentic Torontonian experience, right, right, right. Which then, and if that's done with respect and that's done with love, right. And when I see the mixtures of groups that walk around in Toronto, you see inter interracial groups right and they're and they're engaging with each other with respect and with love mm-hmm. and that opens up so many possibilities right for the next generation coming up around how much of themselves they can bring into these spaces right because it again reminds me of a situation i used to have um, locks and my father when i first locked my hair my dad was like nobody's gonna hire if you have dreadlocks nobody nobody's gonna give you a job and i I just remember having a conversation saying no one's hiring me for my hair they're hiring me for my skills knowledge and my abilities (laughs) so it should be a non-issue but again that's social context Right. That's the time that my father was growing up and these things were very real. And so there was a, 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 a framework on how you presented yourself and dreadlocks certainly was not a part of that picture. And so as we've moved forward, you know, that we that we have the ability to, though distinct. As I say that, there are pushback. There is pushback, <laughs> yeah. and we do see that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, you know, and again, as part of like Dean Drag, I make a point to wear my hair naturally, um, and to do it in a variety of ways. Everyone's like, your hair is doing a totally different thing today than it did yesterday. So, but that's just to show like the variety of what you can do. Um, you know, occasionally I get it braided or I had like last year for six months, I had faux dreadlocks. <laughs> um, and, but that's, again, that's about, um, bringing that, um, that authentic sense of possibilities into this leadership role where you, you can actually, not only do you not have to change who you are and what you do, you can continuously change who, who you, you are, are and what right? you do. Because again, that space. You know, like, you know, like, uh, like, didn't you have short hair last week and, and now you have long hair and now you have braids? You know, that, that, that it perplexes people that we have the ability to do that yeah. with our hair. Right. And I think also it, this the natural hair, I, I feel that there's a great movement, especially with the black women, this embracing of our natural hair. You know, because I remember growing up having home hair where I had the turtleneck on my head because I wanted the long hair. And, you know, to see the the transition of acceptance, because I also speak, I think it also speaks to us saying that black women are beautiful mm-hmm. in all of our natural sense. You and know? I feel like I was, so I was born in 1972 and I was so lucky to be born at that particular time because that was coming out of the United States, like the black is beautiful. Amazing women like Pam Greer with these super afros, and my like my family, like my dad and stuff, would always bring like all the black exploitation videos and films mm-hmm. for us to see, and it was amazing. I always say it was amazing in the in, to grow up in that generation with the sense or true sense of sort of blackness and all of its naturalness, right? Being quite beautiful, which I think of some of my cousins who who grew up in the eighties, and this is like the time of tar banks and all these other ones. Like, they grew up with a very different sense of what's the possibilities of beauty right? um, as a black woman. And again, at the same time where it's like, okay, they could buy multi-shaded 
uh, Barbie dolls where I only had like the one shade, one shade. but it was my shade, so it was okay. Um, that then um, at the same time they had these the images of women that they ha- could aspire to were um, were more limited, right, right, than the ones that I grew up with and kind of expire to in the same sort of way or the assumptions around again black is beautiful Beautiful. it's really different and I think also that that was very tied to you know the 1960s with the um, you know black power movement and Mm -hmm. that uprising and and that was a bit the spillover and and, you know I was uh, born and raised in England and my parents what my memories are that we had pictures of Malcolm X Mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King and my mom had family in the states and she would come back with the latest and the greatest of the music and one of the tunes that stays with me uh, is Say It Loud, <laughs> I'm Black and I'm Proud, proud right? Yeah. Like that was ingrained in my psyche, uh, you know, because that, those were the things that my parents and maybe not consciously knowing mm-hmm. that they were really empowering us to be comfortable in our blackness and how we navigated ourselves in the, in the greater world. One of my favorite um, experiences, I did my um, PhD fieldwork in Ethiopia. Um, and so I spent almost like just shy of two years there. And um, to see the photographs of like, again, would be sort of people my parents age. And all of them in these like really short skirts and these big, beautiful afros. <laughs> um, and realizing, you know, like, that it wasn't just something that happened in the States. Right. That it was actually happening around the world. And that, again, a really positive sense of self-affirmation that was happening amongst black people at that point particular point in time right right and and I would and I would link that back to as we spoke about before that the African-American experience being held as the measure Mm -hmm. of the black experience but to a certain degree it for black people where we want to find that positive space and place it really has come out of the African-American culture but the wonderful thing though about that is that like again it's this that that the African-American experience comes out of, like, the liberation um, activities happening in Africa, right? Or if you go way, way, way back, like, again, the first places of freedom for black people was in the Caribbean. Right. <laughs> Haiti, yeah, for example. Like, we are all children of Haiti. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, Jamaica right. with the Maroons. Right. right. And so there's a sense in which that even within that, what we think of as a, again, this is the the... The marketing of it, right, that right. we think of as an American experience is actually deeply tied to all the things that are happening in, around the world that as black people around the world, we are looking at each other and through each other to figure out how we can best be. Right. right. And and I and sometimes I, th- I talk about this um, collective black consciousness mm-hmm. that we have. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world. This is how we connect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's definitely my, like I said, I've traveled so many places in the world. And, um, and I've always have found a community of blackness to embrace me yes um, wherever I've traveled right and it's again it shows up in many different ways so again in the Australian context like 
black folks, Aboriginal folks, are black folks. Right. right? And so there's a way in which even though their situation is more akin to, let's say, First Nations and whatever here, Mm -hmm. that their racial identification is that of blackness. Right. right? And so there's a way in which we could have a conversation around blackness and then, you know, have shared experiences around the discrimination that we have as black folks <laughs> here and there. Right, right. right. Um, that um, allowed me to feel that I was embraced um, at home in a community for the six and a half years that I lived there in a way that, um, again, is very distinct from um, being embraced here. Right. Where I feel because of the sort of the the, the dominance of like, like I'm being embraced by more of a Caribbean culture. Right. right here. Um, and so... Um, but the fact that I can travel all these places, Ethiopia, <laughs> Australia, Toronto, and be able to feel that sense of community, right. um, that's, that, that's the collective consciousness, right, that we all have. Thank you. That's pretty awesome. So that that's something that, you know, that we, we must also keep in mind that we're not in isolation in terms of our experiences and not all experiences, but certain experience. So that's that's fantastic. But I do have one thing because one of the things I do miss and I really like I had a point where I was really, really homesick from the States because I went to go visit Baltimore, Maryland, and I was struck to the point of tears by how much I miss the warmth of how black people engage with you in sort of southern United States Mm. Um, to the point where it's like here I always talk to my friends like okay the thing I don't like about Toronto is that I will make eye contact with another black person and they will act like they don't see See you Mm -hmm. and they won't say hello they won't do the like at least a what's up or nod your head nod you know I mean acknowledgement and so please my black town Torontonians if I turn to you and smile or make eye contact like you please recognize because if not I'm going to move back to the States you know and I agree with that a hundred percent I just want to acknowledge you we don't have to have a conversation let's just keep it moving like you said the head nod hey how you doing keep it moving kind of thing but yeah that's something that I I struggle with as well because, you know, I, I just feel like we need to embrace each other more mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be anything on a large scale, right? right? It is just that. in Baltimore, like what made me be on the verge of tears was the fact that like they would engage you in a conversation for five, ten minutes. How are you? How your family? How's whatever? This is what's going on with me and my family. And that sense of just direct connectedness. And again, mm-hmm. I'm just flew in (laughs) the night before I'm literally walking down the street but it's taking me a 10 minute walk is taking me 40 minutes the human interactions from black person to black person that I'm having there that's a genuine warmth about I'm caring for you yeah and it talked to that whole idea about the community and you are the child actually of the community and people are invested in your well-being yeah. as well, uh, regardless of whether they are biological family or not. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So that's a great point. And yes, my fellow Torontonians, <laughs> please, as you're listening to this, take heed because it makes the world of difference, you know? So I wanted to ask you about... Uh, 
a challenge. What has been a, a, your greatest challenge, or and, and maybe in the context of maybe moving to Toronto, or maybe in terms of it's a it been in a in a role that you've had, and and how you've navigated through that and that kind of thing. Um, well, I guess one of the <laughs> many challenges one faces when you're in a role of leadership anywhere um, is. Um, one of the things I've realized is like I'm a change agent and, mm. and w- I am brought into institutions in order to facilitate change. And that means a couple of things. Um, it means there's always a time limit that right. I have to spend at an institution because if you're constantly the source of disruption and churn, there's a way in which the institution has a really hard time eventually absorbing just how much change that you do. And I'm what I realized about myself is I'm not a maintainer. Like if it gets to the point where I'm maintaining something, I'm completely and totally bored and then I start causing disruptions and then it's time to move on. It's time to move on. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that it means though is that you're never part of the institution. Meaning that you're always outside of it because you're always sort of identifying the aspects of it that needs to move forward or it needs to be changed or and it takes a long time right to do that if you're doing it in such a way that you're actually being respectful of people's ability to absorb change people's ability to um, find their place in a new order and Um, the discomfort that comes with change yes But it's one of those things that one of the the challenges I always face is is how do I I go to these amazing places and I can never stay and what effect that has on the the relationships that I build there what effect that has on the relationships people build with me what effect that has on on again my sense of belongingness. Uh, in places and so I'm always trying to navigate that back and forth Uh, navigate that back and forth in terms of like how I how I find belonging but how I also um, challenge the institution to change and so then does how does that speak to your future and 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 how you see your career if you're going to be the agent of change and then you're constantly moving <laughs> where do you find just a place or you're not moving around and, I don't I don't <laughs> I mean, we have this I've had this wonderful uh, conversations especially with um, a lot of my indigenous colleagues both in Australia and here and it, that used to disrupt I mean that used to bother me a lot because like especially when you're with people who have a deep sense of rootedness like so like my family has been here for like a thousand years right right right. or next generation goes back to the beginning of time yes right and but what we talked about is fact that there's some people and i'm definitely one of those people who are the journey person who's meant to go and collect the stories of what's going on around the world and share that stories with other people so that there's that larger sense of connectedness. And so I think about that in terms of my career, the things that I learned um, when I was working at Swinburne University with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the reasons why I was brought here or accepted to come here in 
in Toronto at OCAD University because I could share the stories of how we can do the things that OCAD was wanting to do. And so I imagine the next place that I go to will be tougher. It probably will be more... um, more scale because I like to scale up <laughs> each time I engage with something. Uh, it'll be more in scale, but I'll be able to tell the stories of what it is that we've accomplished at OCAD around decolonizing design, bringing real diversity inclusion. I'll be able to tell those stories to the next place that I go to so that they won't be afraid right, of the changes of the that change. are coming. Right? right, because, you know, again, we, we are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. We like continuity. We like familiarity and then we hear change Mm -hmm. and everybody starts getting into that panic mode Mm -hmm. but again as you speak to facilitating it so that it's not as disruptive for them you know that's a special skill because you know change uh, change agent management is something that should be always considered right and this is where my my background as an anthropologist helps because i understand the importance of ritual i understand Mm -hmm. the importance of history but also I understand as a designer what is the leverage points that you can find in the experience to shift people and communicate to people the importance of that shift. So it brings, like again, if I understand people's values, then I know how to create the designs that will embrace the experiences they want to embrace but also shift the experiences that need to shift and those all things fit together right right right. in like a seamless transition Mm -hmm. and they just meld well with each other so i think we're going to wrap up shortly Mm -hmm. but i do have one question i would like to well maybe two Mm -hmm. but how do you see like the intersectionality of design and race uh, in that kind of context? Like, how are they connected and how do they influence each other? Mm. If you could speak on um, that. So, again, design is the way in which we express who we are. It, that, and again, this is the thing you learn as an anthropologist is how to decode what it is that you think this is a table, but this table actually means that I want my relationships to people to work in this particular way. I want to show the hierarchy, or I want to show the egalitarianism, or I want to show that there is a little bit of hierarchy, but it's only for the elders and the younger people or that. So all of these things that you learn in, in, in anthropology is how to decode the fact that all of the things we design have cultural meetings. There is nothing that is culturally neutral that is made by a human being. And so they're deeply, deeply tied together, but they're treated as if they're separate, right? So my life work has been about showing that nexus between design and race. And race, again, is just a false categorization that we've made around certain types of cultural differences and certain types of physical differences that we've uh, experienced in the world. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it's a powerful category because we've had uh, institutional structures of racism (laughs) impose meaning on these races in terms of like, again, the quality of the housing that you receive, the Mm. quality of the clothing that you see, the quality of the food that you receive. All of these things, which again are designed manifestations of a certain type of reality and a certain type of uh, perception of what is a good life. Right. So they're deeply tied to one another, and my work is to help people decode it, 
the relationships between them, and then where where there needs to be change to make the changes around uh, what needs to be designed in order to embrace the cultural differences that exist between and amongst the races. That's pretty awesome, <laughs> Dean Dory. That's really deep. I, I really... That, that's food for thought mm-hmm. and, and definitely gives uh, much thought for us as we navigate ourselves as well because, we, you, like you said, the it is all by design. Mm-hmm. So we need to always keep that in the back of our heads. And what would you say to the black community in terms of supporting design and art and how important it mm-hmm. is for us? Because, you know... As our children are growing and and we want them to be educated and they say, I'm not going to be the lawyer, I'm not going to be the doctor. And they say, I'm going to take a a, a role in the art and design world. And the parents say, oh, starving artist and all of those things. What, what, What words of encouragement would you give to the community at large in terms of supporting? So at OK University, we have this Black Youth Design Initiative and what it's the why it's designed because everyone's like why it's a design initiative and not an arts program and it's because what design's superpower is its ability to build your confidence in what you imagine what you make and what you connect to other people to have impact so like there's lots of things that arts around the imagination and you might make things but it's not as direct in how you connect and have impact and especially connect and have impact to multiple people, right? Mm. And so in in the Black Youth Design Initiative, what racism seeks to undercut is your confidence in those things. So it starts with your confidence in, in terms of connecting and having impact. Then it goes and it works against your sense of making something real or tangible or making it happen. And then it goes back and it begins to limit your imagination around what's the possibilities. So for me, design gives you that practice. I imagine a cup. I can make it. I can make it for three or four other people and they're able to drink from it. (laughs) And they're happy because they're able to drink from it. And you start at that small scale, but then you say, I can imagine my community. Mm. And I can then, these are all the things that I can do to make that imagining real and tangible and connect it to people and have impact. And so to the extent to which we can take that design confidence, right? then that is the best guard that we have against institutional racism, is, is our ability to imagine, make, and connect in order to have impact for us as black people and by us as black people. So... You can have them be a doctor, lawyer, or whatever, but also encourage them to come to OCAD University, (laughs) where you have the first black dean of design of any faculty of design anywhere. Um, And we are working very, very hard to make our institution a place where, as a young black person, one, you can express your aesthetics, whether you're from Africa or Caribbean heritage or long-term, multi-generational North American heritage, that that is a place where that will be nurtured and supported as excellence in aesthetics, right? We want you to come to a place where, um, again, they are having their confidence built every day and their ability to connect 
and make things that are useful for us as a community, right? With a sense of ethics, with a sense of respect, mm-hmm. uh, with a sense of like cultural authenticity, um, but also cultural innovation and change. Um, so those are the things that I would say to the community about why you need to support design and you need to support the arts is that um, that doctor, lawyer, engineer, someone's going to have to do the imagining to do the design work for everything that they have to create. Someone designs the paperwork that that lawyer used. Someone designs the building that that engineer puts in place. Someone designs the medical tools, the space, everything that that doctor has to use in order to heal. And so you can have those things, but you need to have the person who is creating the world of possibilities for all of this to happen. And without that, then we live in a world where we don't belong. Wow. Dean Dory, it has been my absolute pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. It's my pleasure as well. It is just, it's really important too that we get this positive affirmation consistently because sometimes I think we we get stuck, you know, and I believe that everybody has the unique abilities and qualities and whatever you bring to the table from your imagination that you see that you can design, go for it because it's unique to who you are. And the universe is an abundant place. So there's plenty of space for you. Dean Dory, thank you so much for being here. How would people be able to find I uh, Yeah, so find me on Instagram is like my favorite channel to use. So it's Dean Dory underscore OCADU. So Dean Dory, D-E-A-D-O-R-I underscore A-C-A-D-U. Um, so Dean Dory underscore OCADU. Um, check out hashtag Dean Drag every morning. <laughs> I love See it. What I'm I check it out what every morning. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thank you very much. This has been Carolyn Morris Walker from the Urban Lifestyle Report, uh, exemplifying blacknificence and black excellence. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode. It will be equally as inviting and exciting. Thank you.